ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our spectacular guest is Paul Boag, ACRO expert, world-famous podcaster from the old days, and we're really thrilled to have you on the show. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. On board, engage and nurture your customers as well as marketing leads. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at useless.com/worksheets. Hi Paul. From the old days. From the old days. Great. All Thank right. you. Do we need to re-record the intro? <laughs> no, no, leave it. Seriously. Don't you dare re-record right. the intro. I want that left for prosperity. Somebody once called me, back in the day, people used to refer to Jeffrey Zeldman as the grandfather of, of modern web design. And it became a joke that I was described as the weird uncle of web design which I love. I think that's the best title. I'm just that strange, weird uncle that sits in the corner being, you know, at Christmas parties being slightly annoying and drunk. So yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> well, on my spectrum, you sit somewhere between uh, Jeffrey Zeldman and Steve Jobs. So I'm, I'm, I'm rather honored <laughs> to have you on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that because, you know, Okay, Steve Jobs is an icon, but he was also a bit of a bit of a you know. I can't use right, swearing, uh, can I? But a good version was of, of, of uh, yeah. oh, okay, all right then. That's fine. All right. Um, well, we're really honored to learn from you today. But let's hear a short version of your long story: how you had a world famous uh, podcast show for sixteen years, then shut it down. You have your consulting practice and. Uh, how it all works together and what you're up for these days. I think you've pretty much summarized it, haven't you really? <laughs> so I was very fortunate. I was very lucky, basically, that I started blogging and podcasting in 2005, which meant that I had zero competition, at least from the podcasting side. There was no, no other web design podcast when I started. So I ended up with a complete monopoly on the podcasting audience in those early days. And a result, was that I built a substantial audience amongst other other web designers. And so was relatively well known for that for a long, long time. And that led to speaking and writing books and all of that kind of stuff. The podcasting, as you will know, is a lot of work. And so I reached a point about 16 years ago, sorry, about, I don't know, however many years ago now, where I thought, time to draw a line under that. I'm going to take a break from that. And so I stopped doing the podcasting. Well, I still kind of podcast, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of vlogging and newsletters and things like that, really to support my my consultancy business, because I, I just work as a consultant like everybody else and have to earn some money, pay the bills. So these days I'm mainly doing conversion rate optimization work. And I like to almost call myself a user experience marketer. I'm a kind of at that crossover point where marketers and user experience designers meet. My background is very much as a user experience designer, but a lot of my work is around, well, how do we improve conversion rates when people go to websites? So that's what I do these days. I couldn't resonate 
more with with this kind of blend of professions because I'm personally a UX uh, designer, essentially doing marketing for the last five years. So yeah. there definitely needs to be more friendship between these industries. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more about your philosophy in life uh, because you've sort of changed your way from, you know, as you mentioned, working in as in Wild West, uh, like wild hours, late night shifts yeah. towards a more healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm now 50. So I'm in the latter half of my career. And, uh, you know, I love my job. I love working in digital. I love working in UX and and did the whole dot-com boom and bust. I was going to be a millionaire and then I wasn't. And, you know, so I've I've had all of the fun that goes alongside that and, and working ridiculous hours. And I really enjoyed all of that, but it did take a toll and it did, it did, burn me out effectively. And I think a, a lot of people in our career uh, are very poor at looking after their own mental health and their own well-being, um, because, not because they're stupid, but because they love what they do and it becomes all-consuming. So I burnt myself out and so I made a shift in my work-life balance. So I now kind of work to live, right, rather than live to work. So these days I spend uh, much less time working, but I, I kind of work on projects I absolutely love. I pick and choose my clients a lot more and I combine that with, with traveling. So we own a RV out in the States. I live in England. So we'll spend three months at home and then three months in the States where we'll travel around. And thanks to Elon Musk may be ruining Twitter, but thanks to Starlink, I, you know, I can work from anywhere, which is amazing. So, it, you know, that's my life these days, which I love. You have published a book not so long ago about conversion rate mm -hmm. optimization with uh, Smashing yeah. Magazine. Tell mm -hmm. us more. What's the book name and what it is about? Yeah. So the book is called Click. And essentially, it's a book that looks at the subject of conversion and improving the conversion on the website from the perspective of a user experience designer. So there is, I think, a bit of a barrier and an attitude between UX designers and marketers, right? So let's be honest, as UX designers, we tend to look down on marketing a little bit, right? Because they're Marketers, they just want to manipulate people into buying things. That's how we we secretly feel. And we just that's until you meet salespeople. That's until you meet uh, sales. Uh, oh, yeah, they're even worse, are they? Okay, all right. So, you know, and we just want to make users happy. That's all we want to do as UX designers. But actually, the world's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? And the truth is that. You know, marketers and salespeople are under enormous pressure to close leads or generate leads and close sales. And we as UX designers are a little bit protected from that. But equally, there is a pressure on us to, to build solutions that bring results for, the, for an organization. And so that can be a bit of a conflict point where marketers are pressuring us to, to help them meet their targets on conversion. And we, we don't want to do that because we want to provide a better user experience so it's like well how do we reconcile that you know how can we is it possible to both keep users happy and build sales and you know improve lead conversion and that kind of thing do we have to be using dark patterns these kind of manipulative techniques and the answer is no we don't there are ways of 
both pleasing the user, making the user happy, and also meeting business needs and targets and all of those kinds of things. But it's not enough just to say dark patterns are bad. We, you know, we need to be able to justify why they're bad and offer an alternative to that. You've been working with different types of clients throughout your career. I imagine there have been some small and now you're focusing on enterprise. Have you observed different attitude towards how companies of different scale approach CRO? Well, yes and no. It's a little bit of a difficult one to answer, and I'll tell you why. With enterprises, large organizations are focused very heavily on metrics. They're focused on, you know, lifetime customer value. They're focused on lead conversion, all of those kinds of things as you would expect them to be. And so, yes, there is a more blatant and honest focus on those kinds of things. With smaller companies, I think it it tends to be a more of an unsaid thing, right? There is a pressure to improve those metrics. There's a pressure to grow the business. And in some ways, smaller companies are almost hungrier to do those kinds of things than bigger companies. But they're not so blatant about it. They, they won't necessarily come out and say it. They, they'll be more customer-centric in their thinking. They will be more, you know, a, a desire to please their customers. But ultimately, with the aim, if they're honest, of, of improving conversion rate. I think the biggest difference is about attitudes to risk, actually. So enterprise large customers are very risk averse because they've spent years building this huge monolith of an organization and had a huge amount of success. And so they don't want to rock the boat and change things. And so, you know, this world of user experience design and even digital has come along relatively recently for them. And their attitude towards it is okay, yeah, we can adopt these things, but we're a little bit, you know, we don't want to mess up what we've got here, people. While, of course, smaller organizations are hungry and they're, they're willing to try things because they're, they're less likely to lose out on doing that. So that I think attitude towards risk is probably the biggest difference rather than necessarily the focus on conversion. I think both focus on conversion, but just present it in slightly different ways. Maybe you do hold the answer to one of my pressing questions is why companies, as they grow, used to have completely like sexy homepage design, uh, design aesthetic that you would have just like go and lick every button on the page and every like caption as beautifully styled as it is. And and these days, uh, as they grow, you suddenly see not just a conservative homepage, but also not even visually pleasing anymore. Like, why is yeah. that? How is aesthetics lost? Well, part of it is, as you say, that attitude towards risk that people become more conservative. I think the, the biggest one, however, is number of stakeholders. The bigger that you get, the more stakeholders that you have, the more stakeholders, the more compromises involved. Also, I think smaller companies pay, play a little bit fast and loose. Um, with things while bigger companies don't. So classic examples of that are, are rules around compliance or legislation about you know what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot say. Smaller companies are willing to risk it because they're kind of under the radar and no one really pays a lot of attention to them, while a bigger company may be a bit more cautious because of, you know they're worried what might happen to them. In terms of kind of aesthetics, though, I think a lot of it is the number of stakeholders involved. You don't just have a designer making decisions about the design direction. You have committees. And uh, committees normally made up of a lot of non-designers. 
And that, you know, it's not enough just to say, well, they should just let the designers do it. Well, no, it's not that simple in a large organization. The solution to the problem is designers need to be get better at presenting their designs. Most designers I know are shocking at presenting their designs in a way that makes sense to non-designers and that is compelling and believable, et cetera. So that's a, a huge amount of the work I do with internal design teams is basically teaching them how to sell design, you know? Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because essentially as one's career progresses, the design skills remain somewhat similar, but the what you learn is how to work around that in the business side, how to present it, and yeah. also maybe how to put additional two hours of work here and there because you know what exactly makes clients like it uh, versus yeah. like what, what you knew 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah that's pretty impressive. I think you, you've got it right for with the stakeholders. Do you ever participate in uh, things that require committees and other things or do you have, uh, <laughs> as a consultant, better projects with smaller goals and uh, smaller stakeholder? No, like- I have committees coming out of my backside. I have committees about committees, you know. All right. I have committees, <laughs> I have working groups, I have leadership groups, oversight groups, you name it, I've got them. And so, yeah, I've become quite adept at navigating all of that stuff and presenting things in a way that works really well. We could do a ho- I could do a whole book on that subject. Perhaps that needs to be my next book is how to deal with stakeholders. I've certainly, I certainly run workshops on that because it is a huge, a huge issue to undertake. Uh, divide and conquer. That's the one tip I'll give right now. When it comes to committees, don't work with them collectively but actually work with them individually. So because if you can talk to those committee members and win them over individually, it means you can you can customize your messaging to that individual that you're talking to. So if I'm presenting a design to a big group, I've got to talk very generically about the design. However, if I'm talking just to the marketing person, I could talk about how my design will improve lead generation. If I'm talking to the finance person, I could say how it's going to make cost savings. If, I can, if I'm talking to the head of IT, I can talk about how it's going to be easier to manage than the previous design, you know, from a technical perspective. So dividing and conquering is a very good way of actually allowing you to to present the design in different ways to different people. But that's a whole nother conversation in itself, you know? I almost wish we had this as a topic for, for the episode. No, I'm just kidding. But it's a, it's a really fascinating topic indeed. Well, I'm more than happy to come back another week to discuss that one <laughs> if you want to. Let's see how it goes. Going back to White Hat's Hero versus those dark patterns. So yeah. what, what is a dark pattern when it comes to Zero? I'm curious whether dark patterns, whether marketers even think about dark patterns, because no. designers obviously do. Uh, marketers, everything yeah. is amazing. Uh, you don't like, nothing can hurt, etc., etc. <laughs> I think that marketers are so in the weeds, right? They're under enormous pressure. Can you imagine if you spent, you know, every day of your work going, am I going to make quarterly targets, right? Am I going to generate enough leads this, this quarter? That is an enormous pressure to be under and to know your job is on the line if you don't. So because they're under that constant pressure, they're they're just looking at what works, right? They're not questioning the morality of it. They're not questioning uh, the ethics of it. Um, They are ethical people. It's just that they, they don't have the time or opportunity to think about these things. 
But it's not enough just to turn around to them and say, well, dark patterns, manipulative techniques are unethical. Because that's a horrible thing to say to someone. You're being unethical, right? You know, that's just going to put their backs up and irritate them. So really, that the, all these articles I read that, that just go on about how unethical dark patterns are just really irritate me. How dare you judge somebody else, you know, and for their the decisions they made? Yeah, maybe, but you don't understand their situation. You don't understand the pressure that they're under. So when I talk about dark patterns and why you shouldn't be using them, I really focus on the, the problems that dark patterns create, the problems that aren't immediately obvious from the metrics that the marketing people are following. Because the truth is dark patterns work. If you manipulate someone, if you create a fear of missing out, for example, or that you, you create a sense of scarcity, these kinds of things that you see a lot on hotel booking sites and that kind of stuff, they work. They work without a shadow of a doubt they work in terms of improving conversion. But what you don't see is the knock-on effect of them. So, for example, there is this presumption that people, if these techniques work, therefore users are unaware of them, right? Because otherwise, why would they allow them to work? But actually, users are aware of them. I've done countless usability testing on sites that use dark patterns, and they'll go, oh, I hate this manipulative stuff. It's so annoying. It's, you know, I just ignore it. And the reason that the techniques work is because people think they can ignore them, not because they're unaware of them, right? So they think they're ignoring them, but they're still influencing their behavior. But it gives them a bad oh. taste, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's a really important distinction to make because if they were just unaware of them, right, then no harm, no fat, you know, the marketers could get away with it. Because people would be ignorant, they wouldn't know that they'd been manipulated, they would go away happy. But because they are aware that these dark patterns are attempting to manipulate them, right, then the problem becomes is, yes, they might still work, but you upset people, right? And that causes real-world problems. They say bad things about you online, which damages your reputation, which means you have to increase your marketing spend in order to counteract those, you know, negativity. It damages lifetime customer value because people get annoyed with you and don't want to stay with you. It damages repeat orders, right? It also can have knock-on effects like, for example, I once worked with an organization that used a dark pattern where they sold kettles, amongst other things. And whenever they sold a kettle, they would automatically bundle a filters for this kettle, right, without asking people. Now, that's a classic dark pattern. So people would end up paying a little bit extra to get these, these filters that they didn't want. And so they would, end, they would miss this and end up getting these filters through and go, hang on, I've been charged more than I should have been. And so they would be annoyed and then they would call up return, you know, they would call up and complain. And then they would return their filters and all the hassle of, of that. Now, actually, that ended up costing from an e-commerce point of view, it was great. They increased their average order value. So they went away happy. But by the time you took into account the cost of um, telephone support of all these people complaining, the cost of the return policy and restocking those filters, actually the company as a whole was losing money on that dark pattern. So actually talking about the business problems that dark patterns create is far more effective than it is to go, this is unethical, you shouldn't be doing it. Do you see what I'm getting at? Absolutely. And if you compare that to a classic white hat uh, upsell funnel that e-commerce stores have, 
Yeah. That's a different story. For, for, for that part, it's still effective because you are upselling the person at the right moment with the right thing, but doing yeah. that consciously and they know what they're doing. So that yeah. produces a much and better that, result. That comes on to a really interesting point, which is it's not enough that even though, even if you point out the problem with dark patterns, right? Okay, these are the issues with dark patterns. You can't stop there because the marketer still has to make their targets, right? So you have to offer them options alternatives alternatives that will achieve the same results but in a different way and i think we're very good as ux designers for criticizing but not necessarily providing tangible options so there is a lot that we can still do as ux designers to improve conversion in a measurable way that is an alternative to dark patterns so that then comes down to still using psychology and understanding pe- the way people think and the, the way that they learn and all of those kinds of things, but is not to use the, the manipulative elements of that in order to, to achieve it. So, for example, one of the big ways that I improve conversion rate is by reducing cognitive load, right? So basically, the more complicated and confusing an interface is, the higher our cognitive load becomes, the more likely we are to make mistakes, the more negative we feel about the experience that we're having, the more likely we are to think that the company is lying to us if our cognitive load is high. So you can basically, if you design a simpler, cleaner, end-to-end experience, you lower people's cognitive load that builds trust, increases conversion, etc. Now, Everybody listening to this is thinking, well, that's obvious, right? You make something simpler and it, you know, you you improve conversion. Yeah, that's true. It's obvious to us. But we need to be good at communicating that to marketers in a way that resonates with them. So it's not enough just to go, oh, we need to keep things clean and simple. You have to explain why right? Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because the more things, you know, people see on a screen, the more elements there are, you know, we get overwhelmed and you introduce the concept of cognitive load, people's understanding of an interface and how they interact. And so you you frame it in terms of the same kind of psychology that they've learned from the dark patterns, right? So it's kind of communicating, comes back to what we were talking about earlier, about it's communicating in the language that they understand that is so crucial to success. And it's also about providing them with data to back this up. So, and we're always complaining that we don't have enough time for testing and stuff, but there are some really cool tools out there that make it so, so easy for you. So let's take, for example, cognitive load, right? You want to prove to a marketer that your clean, simple design right, that you've created is going to work much better than some complicated thing with loads of pop-ups and overlays, right? You know, that uses fear of missing out and scarcity and all of these other things. Well, there's a tool called Attention Insights. And Attention Insights have taken thousands of hours of eye-tracking studies and built a machine learning algorithm that can predict where people will look on a page, right? So you take your lovely, clean, simple design that focuses the user on the key calls to action and you upload that and it will tell you where people will look on that page and how much attention the call to action will have. Then you upload their their rubbish, you know, confusing, too much copy, pop-up overlays design and see which one wins, right? 
hard data that you can present to your marketing people far more effective than going, well, it's got to be clean. There's got to be, you know, lots of white space. Well, why? Give them evidence, you know? I should also say that sometimes what really works requires additional design hours put in and not every designer is willing to do that. Classic example for software would be uh, good screenshots that really explain what we want con- uh-huh. to convey here. This is like such an underestimated thing to work on because it takes like dozens of hours to make a really good explanatory one. And maybe a designer just doesn't want to go as far, maybe, well, they're not feeling like doing that. And the marketer wants it. So... <laughs> Yeah, it can be frustrating. Sometimes that's because designers are under their own pressure. For example, then then not enough time has been given to design, which I can completely understand. So in that case, the challenge that we face as designers is to demonstrate that there is a need to actually go above and beyond, that that those gorgeous screenshots actually will make a difference. So in that case, what, what I've got a tendency to do there is, you know, I mock up the page with my crappy screenshots, right, that I've been given by somebody that I know are rubbish. And then I mock up the page, you know, just one page with even half a page, even above the fold, wherever that mysterious thing is, which shows a nicer screenshot. And then in that case, I'll do a quick flash test, right? So I'll use a tool like Usability Hub, which basically will show people the two versions of the home page right and you could you could show this to anybody just as a survey and you say which of these two designs is the more trustworthy the more compelling which one are you more likely to buy from right and just get a response back immediately you know it really it takes like less than an hour to to actually show that your screenshot is more compelling than the rubbish version. And it's worth investing time in actually producing those great screenshots. So again, it's about justifying the effort that needs to be put into what we do as designers and doing a little bit of quick testing, you know, with a tool like Usability Hub makes an enormous difference. Now, people will go, yeah, but I don't have the time or the resources to do that kind of testing, or I don't have access to my audience. But none of this needs to cost a lot of money. I mean, that Attention Insights tool that I mentioned costs, I think, 19 euros a month. That's all, right? And you could only you could use it just for one month if you wanted to and cancel your account, right? And immediately you've got evidence. Then, for example, there's another tool that I use. I think it's called pollfish.com which is a survey tool, you could do a comparison test there, like I just described with the the screenshots, that you could use it either for free, where you upload your own, or alternatively, you could pay less than a dollar per person to actually for them to find you people to take that test for you. So you could get, I don't know, 20 people to look at it. And, you know, that's $20. And you get the evidence that you need. Hell, it's worth paying out your own pocket in order to avoid sitting in a net, another endless meeting where you discuss which version is the best, you know? I'm curious to hear, we all know that different target audiences perceive things differently. And if yeah. your target audience is business founders, 
you're not going to get business yeah. founders performing your usability tests. That's been my always like a big question for this. Yes and no. These professional tools like Polefish can get you people like that, right? By the way, can you spell that fish thing for us? P O L L F I S H. Oh, Polefish. Okay, I was like Poolfish. Sorry. Poolfish. <laughs> yeah, no, that's my my West Country English accent. Sorry about that. Yes, so it, they can get you people like that. However, and this is this is an area of confusion. In an ideal world, yes, you would have your specific target audience do the the review of a survey like this. Absolutely, totally agree with that. However, in truth, using anybody outside of the project is better than doing nothing. Right. You and all of your stakeholders are way, way too close to this to be able to think objectively about it. So even if you just test it with friends and family, that's better than nothing. To take that even further, however, when it comes to usability, so cognitive load stuff, so maybe with the with the screenshot example, that's maybe more aesthetics than it is usability. So so that's a bit of a gray area, that one. But let's say, you know, you're arguing about will people spot something on a page, right? Is the logo big enough? You know, if you want people to see the logo, <laughs> is the call to action button big enough? Or does it need to be above the fold? All of those kinds of crappy discussions that you have. In those cases, unless your audience is either very young or very old or got some kind of cognitive disability, right? Most people will react in the same way. You and me, for example, we're different generations, we're different genders, we come from different countries, we've got very little in common with one another. Yet if we were asked to look at a page and spot a particular item on that page, we'd probably respond pretty similarly, right? I might be slightly worse at it because my eyesight's beginning to go as I age, right? But generally speaking, most of our usability will be the same. Now, aesthetically, we'll be very different, right? We'll have incredibly different taste, okay? But that's a different thing. So you can distinguish between testing accessibility and testing usability. And if it's a usability problem, don't worry too much about your segment. Into your library of ways to test things, like you said, anybody outside the project is better than yourself. We've had great success running potential screenshots on social media. And yes. uh, last March, we almost prevented a positioning disaster from happening because we wrote new copy for H1 on the homepage that was promoting a certain feature that we offer. And the problem is, while being valuable to like a quarter of our customers and being a unique feature for us, it's completely puzzling for the rest 75%. And our yeah. existing customers started chiming, chiming into the thread and saying, oh my God, shall I stop using your service? You're not no longer targeting me as as a customer. Yeah. We're like, no, no, no. We're just highlighting something new here, like planting a flag. Like, no, 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 no. And yeah. then one of our customers, again, was able to suggest another headline that was able to communicate the same thing, but keep in the loop the other 75 that were also like, basically Absolutely. was a wonderful idea to run it by people. <laughs> yeah. And social media is is superb. The only thing you've got to be a bit, little, little bit careful of with social media is that, they are 
existing customers. So they, they already have an understanding of their product or service. So depending on what you're testing, sometimes you need to be a little bit careful with those. One of my favorite ways, actually, and this will probably cause some consternation amongst uh, UX designers. But I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Yeah, Keep going. <laughs> it is a pop-up, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> I do. I do a lot of exit intent surveys, right? So essentially, if someone goes to a landing page, let's say, which is selling the product, as they go to leave that product, if I know that they haven't clicked on the call to action, right? So I know that they're not going to convert. I will throw a pop-up up just as they go and leave. And I'll, I'll say, hey, one question. Hey, it would be really great to know why you didn't buy today or why you didn't complete the call to action or whatever it is. And then I just give them a multi-choice list of things. You know, is it price? Is it, you know, I don't know, quality? Don't, you know, do you not trust it? Does it not do what you want? Whatever. And that one question is incredibly powerful because it helps you to work out what you need to focus on. Do you need to be focusing on the copy, the benefits, the features, the price, the whatever? And you give people an additional other option where they can put their own thing. And those are incredibly insightful for working out where your underlying problems are and, and how you can go about improving them. The other thing that I do, which doesn't involve asking anybody anything, which is great, is I have um, a kind of cycle that I go through to improve the conversion of any website. So, And the cycle goes like this. Uh, when the website's live, the very first thing that I'm doing is uh, looking at the analytics, going to Google Analytics. Now, I'm terrible at analytics, right? It's not my natural environment. Figures and numbers and charts, they just make me start to dribble. However, I'm just looking for very basic things. And the two basic things I'm looking for are bounce rate and exits, right? So which pages do people exit from? Which pages do people hit and then immediately leave the website? So I look for the just the top one. It's not complicated. I look for the, the biggest bounce point, right? Okay, so we've got a problem with that page. Great. So we know a problem page, but we don't know what's wrong with the page. So the next thing I do is I'll use something like Hotjar, or if you don't want to pay money, you can use something called Microsoft Clarity, which will basically give me more detail on people's behavior on that page. Okay. So for example, they were, it'll give me heat maps. So I can see how far people have scrolled on the page. I can see whether they've rage clicked and you know, when people click out of frustration, whether they've tried to click on something that doesn't work, right. Isn't clickable or whether the form has thrown a validation error or, or whatever else. And I can even watch sessions back where I can watch people moving around that page. Right. So now that's going to give me a pretty good, strong indication of whether or not there is a problem on that particular page and what the problem is. Right. If I'm still none the wiser after doing that, then maybe I'll run some usability testing. Right. Where I can actually ask questions or get people to speak out loud while they're using it. But 90 percent of the time I'll go, oh, OK, so they're confused by that bit of copy or they're not scrolling down far enough to see that call to action or whatever else. Then all I do is mock up an alternative, right? How I think it might be fixed. Sometimes I do multiple alternatives. And then depending on the size of the changes, I'll take a couple of different approaches. So if I have to make a lot of changes to the page, I'll probably end up having to mock up a whole new page in something like Figma, at which point I will run some unfacilitated usability testing 
probably using a tool like Maze, which basically will record people interacting with that page, get their feedback to see whether my new design works or not. If it's just a small change, right? So if maybe I'm changing the color of a button or changing a headline like you suggested there, that's when I start using A-B testing tools. So I use something like VWO or Google Optimize to actually just make that change directly to the page and show it to you know a percentage of the audience to see if it improves. So once I've improved the page, right? And once I know it's working better, then I'll Back to the beginning of the cycle, back into analytics, look for the next big bounce page, the next big you know, drop-off point, and rinse and repeat. And it's as simple as that, going through that cycle, incrementally improving, and that's how you improve a conversion rate. And just to give you a sense of how big an impact that can make, I once worked on an e-commerce site which sold frozen ready meals to old people. Right. So basically, once you get really old and you, you don't want to cook anymore, you, you get these meals delivered. And their average age of their customer was over 80, right? Really are. Now, admittedly, they didn't do most of the ordering themselves. It's their kids that did their ordering. The average kid was in their 60s, right? So this is an old audience, <laughs> right? All right. Uh, and so working on this site, I discovered that people were dropping off at the credit card page. So they'd gone through the whole process. They'd selected their products. They put them in the basket. They'd seen the price. They'd gone to checkout. And then they were abandoning on the credit card page. And it was like, well, why? What's going on there? And so looking at the, um, the, the kind of heat maps and things like that, I was, um, I was seeing that they were really hesitant to enter their credit card details, right? Well, no, you know, not surprising on if that's the page they're dropping out on. So my, my hypothesis, my guess as a designer, was that actually they were afraid to enter their credit card, right? They were worried, you know, more elderly audience, not so comfortable with e-commerce. So, but I had this VeriSign logo, you know, that, that says, you know, this is secure and all the rest of it. But I guess that none of them had a clue what a VeriSign logo was. I mean, you know, why would they? So we replaced that with a bit of a padlock, a picture of a padlock and a bit of text saying, if you see a padlock in your address bar, you know it's secure, right? You know, and no it's way. safe to enter the credit. No. <laughs> and, and that increased the conversion rate. Uh, not by much, just by, I think, a 1%, right? So then I thought, well, okay, I wonder whether we've got the best wording there. So I started trying different wording and different images on A-B testing. We eventually caused a 6% increase in sales just by reassuring people at that point and changing that one piece. So it can make an enormous difference. Now, marketers love this, right? And have I damaged user experience? No, I've actually made the customer happier. I've made them feel more confident and more secure, yet I've given them a 6% increase in conversion. That's good UX design, he says modestly. <laughs> We've been discussing those email opt-in forms as pop-ups in our yes. chat before. And our friend Laura Roder uh, reached out to me after we've had it for a while. And she said, I can't stop, but just some new copy. Go test it for those uh, lead magnet. And she yeah. said something like, steal those email templates for your SaaS or something like that. That... Mm -hmm literally almost doubled conversions on the yeah. same opt-in. We were blown away, to be honest. We tested for like for a month or so. It was pretty fascinating. 
That's a really good example, actually. You know, a lot of UX designers are quite anti these overlays and pop-ups, right? There's nothing inherently wrong. I wouldn't say a pop-up or an overlay is a dark pattern, right? Because it's not attempting to manipulate people into doing something that they wouldn't otherwise do. It's just making sure that they see that particular call to action. That said, they're annoying, right? We all know they're annoying. And so you've got to balance, okay, how much am I annoying people compared to how much is it improving my conversion? So my preference in that situation, I know you haven't done this on your own site, so please don't shoot me. But my preference is I only show on my site, I only show those kinds of overlays as someone goes to leave the website. So I use them as on exit intent. I don't use them on a timer. I don't do them immediately. So let me give you an example of what that really happened to me is that I often go to speak at conferences and at conferences, you tend to meet the same speakers again and again, and you start to do silly things. Like one conference I spoke at, we had to get as many Beatle lyrics into our talk as possible. And this particular one, we decided we were all going to wear silly, geeky t-shirts. Whoever could, you know, get the geekiest t-shirt would win. So I went to this website that I knew sold geeky t-shirts and I arrived on the website. And the very first thing that happened was it popped up an overlay saying get 10% off your first order if you join our newsletter. Now, I immediately closed that because I hadn't seen any t-shirts. So I, so that 10% had no value to me at that point because I didn't know whether I was going to buy from the website. So I wasn't going to hand over my email address for no reason. So I closed it down as you would do. To be honest, it's almost Pavlovian, isn't it, when you see an overlay that you just click close. Um, it's not just one overlay, went on, is it? It's a cookie yeah, banner, it, uh, something else. Yeah, yeah, you get loads of them, don't you? It's ridiculous. So anyway, I went on and looked through this website, and eventually I, I found a T-shirt I really liked. Well, now I wanted my 10% off, but the overlay had gone, right? <laughs> so I couldn't get it. And, and so I was sitting there going, well, I'm not paying full price for this now. You know, in my head, I was being overcharged by 10% for the T-shirt. And I had no way of getting my 10%. So I left and I didn't buy the T-shirt there. That story summarizes really the good and the bad side of overlays, right? Because it did get my attention, right? And it did give me, offer me something I really wanted, okay? But it did it at the wrong moment. And that's the key when it comes to overlays is, you know, you've got to do it in the right moment in the user's journey. OK, so, uh, you know, for example, a user doesn't go to the website going, I want to sign up for your newsletter. Right. That, that's not why they visit the website. They visit the website because they're interested in your product or service or they're interested in getting an answer to a particular question. If it's a resources section or whatever else, you have to let the user do their initial assessment, find out, complete their personal task before you present them with your task. So. You know, if like on my own website, when people come to my website and they've just Googled on something they, you know, that they want an answer to about UX design or conversion rate optimization, they arrive on my website. If I hit them with a newsletter straight away, my conversion rate would be okay, but it wouldn't be as high as it could be. So what I do is I let them read the article, get their answer, hopefully go, oh, that was pretty good. 
Now, they'll just go to leave at that point. Now, that's the moment that I intercept them and say, hey, did you find this useful? Well, you can get this, you know, free copy of my book or whatever it is that I give away if you sign up for my newsletter. And that is the moment to do it because now they see value in my writing. Do you see the difference? So timing is crucial when it comes to conversion rate optimization, especially if you're using overlays. I can say a similar thing about emails. Well, because we we all we care about emails these days. We had a fantastic conversation with Claudio of Inner Trends a few weeks ago at Better Done Than Perfect. And the takeaway is not only it's hard to measure the positive impact of emails, but sometimes they can have negative impact. If you yeah. bombard the user with irrelevant salesy messages at the yeah. wrong time. That highlights the biggest mistake of all free products out there. They try to convert you to a paid plan without mm-hmm. measuring your success metric. You haven't yet gone from zero to one and they're already sending mm-hmm. you like upgrade to the paid plan thing. Super easy to track, but that's what a lot of companies get wrong, unfortunately. And again, that's because with emails, I almost have a very similar attitude than I do with pop-up overlays, that timing is everything, as you say. So that's why I love trigger-based emails, right? So I love emails that are sent in response to certain behavior and certain things that the user has done. So that might be, you know, the user has logged into the app for the first time, or the user has, you know, sent their their first, you know, email campaign through you or, or whatever it is, rather than just bombarding them with this series of emails. Even even with my own mailing list, right? I, I don't, maybe don't do trigger emails because I don't really have those kinds of metrics to be able to do that. But I do make sure that everybody who joins my email list go through an onboarding course rather than just being dropped in randomly into a you know some random email that I'm sending out. You know, so you've got to take people on that journey. It's all about the journey when it comes to conversion. That journey from not knowing your product exists to becoming a paid you know, subscriber to it. Thank you so much for amazing insights today. As we're wrapping up today's episode, where can people find yourself and your resources and your blog and your mailing list online? (laughs) Well, obviously... The thing that's uh, it's call to action time. This is where we're at now, isn't it? In the in the podcast, hopefully I've given away value, and so now I've given away value. I've demonstrated my expertise. Now's the point where you respond. So what I'd love you to do is sign up for my for my mailing list, where I don't really sell as such, but I, I teach is the primary thing I'm doing for free, and you can sign up for that. It's an email once every two weeks. And to sign up for it, if you, you can just go to my website and sign up via that. My website is boagworld, B-O-A-G world.com. There's 16 years of blog posts there. There are hundreds and hundreds of hours of podcasts there. So much material you can check out there. But to sign up for my newsletter, if instead of going to my website, you go to this URL. So boag, B-O-A-G dot world forward slash UI breakfast. If you sign up via that, you can get a free copy of my latest book, the, the book on conversion rate optimization that I've, I've been talking about called Click. So you get away without, see, I'm using that as my lead magnet in order to give somebody something value in order to encourage them to sign up to the newsletter. And so, yeah, sign up that way instead and you'll probably, you'll, well, you will get a copy of the book instead. 
Amazing. Love how you framed it. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, um, you, you can't sit and spend 40 minutes talking about conversion rate optimization and calls to action without admitting that that's what you're doing at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks once again. And uh, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you.